The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. July 21st, 2020, we are in a blizzard of lies. We are, in fact, in opposite land, as the children like to play. I'll give you just a couple of examples from my own personal knowledge. First, uh, Tucker's back on telly this week. Last week, he was off on what Fox called a long-planned vacation. Everyone who reported on the alleged controversy over his alleged top writer being forced to quit put long-planned in snare quotes... Uh, That nice young man, Trevor Noah, who for some reason has a show on a comedy channel, even though he never says anything funny, uh, he used to be funny, Trevor Noah. I saw him at the London Palladium where he did an hilarious routine about how utterly stupid Americans are. But for some reason, he doesn't do that anymore. Uh, Always remember that 90% of comedy is pandering. Where was I? Oh, yeah, Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah did a whole routine mocking the alleged planning of Tucker's vacation, the implication being that Fox had instantly suspended Tucker until things cooled down a bit. Well, all I know is that on June the 24th, I was asked if I could cover for Tucker uh, last week. I couldn't because I'm a long, long way from any studio right now, but they usually ask in advance because I'm not always in America. So uh, true, three, four weeks is indeed a planning, but it is planning. Uh, It certainly means uh, he was planning his vacation before anything blew up about his quote-unquote top writer having to quit. Yet for the last week, uh, all I've seen, uh, New York Times, CNN, has been premised on the obvious risibility of this quote-unquote long-planned vacation excuse. And as someone who's occasionally in the news and rather more often uh, tangentially connected to something that's in the news, I now read every news story like that, because this has been almost an annual event. It was the same thing happened, I think, when I guested for Tucker either last summer or the summer before. Um, So I read every news story like that, as if there were some piece of information I knew, but nobody else had taken the trouble to find out, perhaps because it would be uh, inconvenient to the narrative. Uh, In other words, I try to find out what's the long-planned vacation aspect uh, that's that's one of the pillars propping up this so-called news story that isn't a story at all. Another big story at the moment, especially if you're seeking evidence as to why we need to defund the police, was in The Atlantic uh, by Dereka, which I think is some kind of female form of Derek I've never come across, Dereka Purnell, uh, headline, Why I Became a Police Abolitionist, and the full sob sister stuff about seeing as a child in St. Louis a police officer shoot a boy because he'd skipped the basketball sign-in sheet. The essay went viral, and then the Federalist decided to check whether it had actually happened because the St. Louis Police Department had no record of it. And after silence from the Atlantic for days, the piece has now been substantially rewritten to be about a private security guard and his adult cousin. Um, So it's not about a police officer shooting a boy at all. And why it should justify police abolition uh, is more perplexing. Now, I used to write for The Atlantic every month, and they're the acme of the kind of American micro-editing 
that I can't stand. So for the first the first piece I wrote about them was about um, Sam Phillips of Sun Records, the first guy to record Elvis Presley when he was a truck driver. Uh, and he wandered into the studio to ask if he re could record an Ink Spot song for his mom, Elvis's very first recording. And that last bit, the micro editors at The Atlantic wanted to clarify as follows wandered in to record an Ink Spot song for his mom as one side of a two sided record. One side of a two-sided record, because it wasn't clear whether he'd recorded the Ink Spot song first or whatever was on the B-side. And I went bonkers and yanked the piece and yelled at the editor, because if you're going to clog up a column with speed bumps like that that no one in their right mind would want to slog through, you can stick your own bloody name on it, because you ain't putting mine on there. And by the way, that's why the only readable authors in American magazines and newspapers are Canadians, Irish, Australian, Scots, English, and all the rest. And it went all the way up to the owner of The Atlantic, David Bradley and he and the editor eventually agreed that I would not be subjected to their normal editing regime, but they still check things. For example, I attributed something or other to some uh, deceased songwriter and they said, well, how do you know that? Because we've checked all the standard reference works and we can't find it anywhere. And I said, well, he told me. And they were sceptical. Oh, he told you, but he told nobody else. And eventually I went up to the attic and found a mouldy old cassette I'd recorded with the guy when I was 19 and we're both slightly off mic, but he's on there saying those words. But that's what the Atlantic's editing process used to be like. They were famous for it. So the fact that they're now running fake stories about police shootings uh, in which no policeman ever pulled a gun tells me uh, two things. One, as with hate crimes in general, there are so few of these things going on uh, that they have to be made up, and they know that. Uh, and B, the Atlantic is no longer the Atlantic. Oh, sure, they have the same logo and the same corporate continuity going back to the mid-19th century, but it's like discovering Saks Fifth Avenue is now running the thrift shop in the dingy alley behind the freight yards. Um, the century and a half tradition has all gone, as it has at the New York Times, which had even more tedious micro-editing rituals, and where my old editor Andrea, if she's still there, doubtless now cowers in fear of the woke 12-year-olds all around. It's Mark Stein's Statue of the Night. You put me high upon a pedestal So high that I could almost see eternity You needed me You needed me We no longer need Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, he was Jefferson Davis's vice president in the Confederacy and the son of Christopher Columbus's right-hand man, Santa Maria. So he's got to go. And a church statue targeted in an unholy act, the figure of Jesus Christ beheaded and damaged. Seven's Robin Simmons has the story. A sickening sight for the faithful at Good Shepherd Catholic Church in southwest Miami-Dade. The statue of Jesus Christ outside the sanctuary knocked off its pedestal and beheaded. Father Edvaldo da Silva has been the priest here for three years. He says that vandalism he's seen in recent weeks has started hitting churches. There's a lot of decapitation about when it comes to the Holy Family from the night before. Good evening, I'm Dorothy Sherman. Thanks so much for joining us for News 12 Now at 11.
Chattanooga police are investigating after a sacred Catholic statue was found beheaded over the weekend. That's tonight's topical story. This is where the five-foot sacred statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary stood at St. Stephen's Church. But according to the Diocese of Knoxville, on Saturday before Mass, the church's pastor found the statue like this, beheaded and lying down in the garden it was in. The damage was reported to police. The police report says they could not find the head of the statue. The Diocese of Knoxville Director of Communications in a statement called it disappointing and concerning. Don't you think... Disappointing and concerning sounds a wee bit pro forma when the soi-disant sacred statue gets beheaded. It's almost as if we're getting used to nocturnal decapitations of Jesus and Mary, the new normal. True, that diocesan communications honcho is not as relaxed on the matter of toppled statuary as that devout Catholic, the ever-prayerful Mother Superior Nancy Pelosi. I don't care that much about statues. Uh-huh. Nancy Pelosi turning the other cheek, which is easy to do when the head's lying on the ground. Granted, the uh, Catholic diocese in Tennessee is not quite as advanced in its thinking as the Church of England, whose more with-it vicars are already apologising for all the Jesus-so-white statues. As I said of them many years ago, there's no market for a faith that has no faith in itself. By contrast, three days from today, the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul will, at Sultan Erdogan's command, host its first Friday prayers in almost a century. It was built between 532 and 537 Anno Domini as the great patriarchal cathedral of Constantinople. After the fall of the city to Islam, Mehmed the Conqueror made it a mosque. When the Allies occupied Constantinople in 1918, they considered confiscating the building and returning it to the Orthodox Church, but ultimately decided against that. A verse from the journal The Christian East, written in Easter 1921. With thy cross thrice over blazoned on our banner o'er the earth, with thy cross at heart rejected as a thing of lesser worth, shall we dare to stand hereafter and bid others put their trust in a sign we hold so lightly that we leave it in the dust? Night after night, a lot of Christian iconography is getting left in the dust. That's more than, quote, disappointing. On Saturday, fire broke out in three different places in the Cathedral of St. Peter and St. Paul in Nantes in France. The grand organ, which was 400 years old and had survived two major fires in 1944 and 1972, has been completely destroyed. Arson is suspected, although as with the causes of the Notre Dame conflagration, I expect the whole business will be memory hold after a week or two. I think at heart we all know that Hagia Sophia and Nantes Cathedral are different points on the same continuum. Good cop, bad cop, really, will turn your most glorious cathedrals into mosques and the less architecturally distinguished ones will burn down. The useless social justice pontiff, 
Pope Francis has said not a word about either Hagia Sophia or Nunt, but has found time to tweet up a storm about climate change. Thank you, genius. The reason it seems hotter than it used to, Your Holiness, is because your cathedral's on fire. Can't get enough of America's undocumented anchorman? SteinOnline.com is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Catch new episodes of The Mark Stein Show. Sit back and experience features like Stein's Song of the Week and Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Get the most of Stein Online by joining the Mark Stein Club, a global community of people just like you. The show never stops for members of the Mark Stein Club. Head on over to steinonline.com slash club for details. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. Poland goes mad, a celebrity fugitive surrenders, and monkeying around on a jungle gym. It's July 1920. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the recent world war continues. The British Prime Minister, Mr Lloyd George, told the House of Commons, if ever a nation in history has gone war mad, that nation is Poland. He announced the dispatch of an Anglo-French delegation to Warsaw to bring the country to its senses and find a way to end the Polish-Soviet war. I am depending upon the wisdom and far-sightedness of the Bolsheviks, he added, to end the war when they realize the Allies' support is with the Poles. Meanwhile, women and children are fleeing Warsaw in advance of an anticipated Russo-Ukrainian invasion. The French have booted the self-proclaimed King of Syria off his throne. Soldiers from the Maghreb and Senegal routed the new king's Arab army outside Damascus, leaving his minister of war among the dead. The dethroned Hashemite, Prince Faisal, has fled Syria for the new British mandate of Palestine in hopes that they will find him somewhere else to reign over. After marching French troops into Damascus, General Goybe then went to the Umayyad mosque, burial place of the legendary Muslim warrior Saladin, and declared, Saladin, we're back. Britain has transformed its East Africa protectorate into a crown colony. Its first governor, Sir Edward Northey, has named the new colony after the country's highest mountain and the second highest in all Africa, Kenya, or as the Amaru people who live on its slopes call it, Mountain of Whiteness. In sports news, Jack Johnson, the first coloured man to win boxing's World Heavyweight Championship, has surrendered to US authorities after seven years on the lam, most of it spent in Europe and Latin America. The legendary champion was charged in 1913 with breaching the Mann Act by transporting a white woman, prostitute Belle Schreiber, across state lines for immoral purposes in 1909. Even though the Mann Act did not exist in 1909, an all-white jury convicted Jack Johnson. 
Mr. Johnson surrendered to Los Angeles County Sheriff John Klein in Tijuana, and together the two men walked over the border to America, where the former champ will now serve his prison term of one year and one day. With the election approaching, the Republican presidential candidate, Senator Warren Harding, has launched his campaign with a speech to thousands of supporters from the front porch of his home in Marion, Ohio. The Prohibition Party has also nominated its presidential candidate, Mr. Aaron S. Watkins. But since the passage of the 18th Amendment, the party's popularity and purpose are thought to have peaked. A Chicago lawyer, Sebastian Hinton, has filed a patent application for what he calls a jungle gym. Mr. Hinton's wife, Carmelita, runs a nursery school and her husband likes to design playground equipment for the children. He says his climbing apparatus provides a kind of jungle canopy that enables the young'uns to play like monkeys swinging through the treetops. Let me take you by the hand Over to the jungle band If you're too old for dancing Get yourself a monkey gland And then let go the Boston Post has shocked its readers with an expose of what its headline writers call the Ponzi Scheme, a scheme developed by Massachusetts businessman Charles Ponzi to defraud investors by using ever more new investors to pay old investors. It is estimated that three quarters of all Boston's policemen have given money to Mr Ponzi. He launched the scheme in January. By the beginning of this month, it was bringing him a million dollars a week. That is now said to have climbed to a million dollars a day. Will the America's Cup be bobbing up and down across the Atlantic with tea magnate Sir Thomas Lipton? To take the prestigious yachting cup, you have to win three out of five races. And right now it's two apiece to the defending US champion Resolute and Sir Thomas's yacht Shamrock 4. And indeed, in one of those races, the American and British vessels finished with the exact same time, four hours, three minutes and six seconds, and Resolute was awarded its much-needed victory 
only on the basis of a seven-minute time allowance. So it's all down to the fifth race. One man who won't be there to see the finish is William Kissam Vanderbilt of the famous Vanderbilt family. Mr. Vanderbilt has died in Paris age 70. A founder of the Jockey Club, he was a breeder of many champion horses and built the American Horse Exchange on Broadway, which is now the Winter Garden Theatre. Also on Broadway, he took over P.T. Barnum's Great Roman Hippodrome and renamed it Madison Square Garden. And in 1895, Mr. Vanderbilt's yacht Defender won that year's America's Cup. As campaigners seek one more state to pass the 19th Amendment and make votes for women a reality, one veteran suffragist who will not see that victory is May Wright Sewell, who has died at the age of 86. And just two months after publishing her book on spiritualism and her psychic encounters, neither dead nor sleeping, the book shocked Mrs. Sewell's suffragist friends, from whom she had kept her spiritual hidden for a quarter of a century. Mrs. Sewell said those who contacted her from the spirit world advised her not to tell her suffragist associates. Whether May Wright Sewell is dead or sleeping or in some other state entirely, perhaps she will let us know. And that's The Way of the World, July 1920. A hundred years from today Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air from Sean Saavedra, a first-hour founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Arizona. Uh, Sean writes, Mark, how do you find the line in refusing to participate in cancel culture? It's easy enough not to watch sports, and you make a point of refusing to live in the Apple podcast ghetto, but what about the countless retailers and manufacturers who have sworn to send millions to racist BLM and supporting organizations. Are you aware of Visa, PayPal and others literally deplatforming individual human beings out of financial existence because they support free speech, Gab's creator and others? How do we draw any kind of line that is not merely designated by convenience? Thanks, Sean. Indeed, Sean, you can boycott or boycott as we now say, apparently, Goya black beans, according to taste. It's not particularly my style, although I understand uh, why a largely friendless right does it when these things come along. But the right tends to get over-invested in these things, as with Chick-fil-A and NASCAR, both of whom turn out to have even more contempt for you than Barbara Streisand does. But these are mere surface fripperies, squabbles over homophobic chicken and racist beans. The social media battles are a little more consequential, but that's mainly because so-called conservatives who've conserved nothing, who've lost almost everything, still can't be buggered to make oh, an extra click or two to put themselves beyond the control of Google or Facebook. Ooh, I'm so conservative that I'd pledge my life, my fortune and my sacred honour, but don't ask me to pledge a second click. That's way too inconvenient. So we have so-called conservatives suing over Facebook demonetization. Uh, because their idea of a conservative world is to live off pennies from woke billionaires 
and in effect exist at the pleasure of those woke billionaires. But as Sean says, we're now moving to the next level, where cancelled is literal. The monopolies and cartels of modern life are determining who gets to do business, who gets to make a living, who gets to eat. A few years back, I mentioned on Tucker's show one of the first instances of this with VDare.com. VDare is uh, Peter Brimelow's anti-immigration website. Not just illegal immigration, but the legal type resulting from what Peter and his chums regard as the disastrous 1965 Immigration Act. I happen to agree with them on that, but a lot of people don't. And that's fair enough. Make a case. Stand your ground. Launch your own website. Ooh, no, 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 no. That's far too much effort. It'd be much easier for me to get you closed down. So PayPal, which is a de facto internet monopoly, and by the way, Stein Online doesn't do business with them either, for reasons I'll go into another day. PayPal says it won't do business with VDare. And then MasterCard, which is a de facto global duopoly, starts announcing that it'll be cutting off this or that enterprise too. Now move it away from freedom of speech to your local Main Street. There's two general stores across the town common, both in business for 40 years. And suddenly Visa and MasterCard say to one of them, sorry, you're done. So now you can only accept cash and checks. Which business is going to survive? There's no longer a real market then. So again, this is a challenge to philosophical conservatives who place their faith in the market and the gods of the market. And likewise, there is now no real market in the so-called marketplace of ideas. With VDare, uh, they've now taken the war to the next level. The layman's assumption is that anybody can start a website. So if Fred Smith wants to launch fredsmith.com, go for it. But in fact, fredsmith.com has to be registered somewhere and its content has to be hosted by a server. That's the boring bit you do right at the beginning when you set up your website and then never give another thought to it. But in the last few years, there's been a huge consolidation of domain registration entities. So you may think you're with the same mom and pop registrar you've been with for 20 years, but in fact, three or four years ago, they became part of Mega Global Thought Control, Inc. So at vdare.com, right out of the blue, they got an email saying, in seven days' time, we're pulling the plug on you. So long. So now there's two general stores opposite each other on the town common, but one's reduced to cash and checks only, and then it gets a notice saying it's been deemed ineligible for electricity supply. So good luck with your dairy and meat freezers. Now this isn't about whether you agree with vdare.com on immigration. They run Ann Coulter and Pat Buchanan and John Derbyshire, and that may all be a little strong meat for you. Well, you're going to have to man up about this stuff, because letting the new totalitarians chow down on Ann and Pat doesn't mean the beasts are now sated, only that they've worked up an appetite for whoever's next, including you. With the 1964 Civil Rights Act, America overthrew three quarters of a century 
of settled Supreme Court law on the government's ability to regulate private business, and indeed on the broader principle of freedom of association. So if you want a public accommodation such as a lunch counter, you can't serve whites and not blacks. And indeed, only the other day, rock-ribbed originalist Neil Gorsuch extended those protections uh, so that you can't serve cisgendered people and not transgendered people. And you know that there'll be some or other group along uh, 18 months from now, whether it's the intersexuals or the two-spirited or whatever the hell comes next. But right now, we have the public accommodations of the computer age, PayPal, MasterCard, these domain registrars, announcing, indeed boasting, that they won't do business with persons who advance views supported by half the American people. Ooh, 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 but what about the First Amendment? Yeah, I've been in an eight-year lawsuit, supposedly, about whether I have the right to exercise my First Amendment right. So you can imagine how I feel about the First Amendment. What matters is the broader culture of free speech. And the constitutional fetishists don't seem to have noticed that freedom of expression is now openly mocked as merely a right-wing obsession. A couple of years back, I used a phrase not entirely in jest on one of our Clubland Q&As with reference to the death of the big, messy, sprawling, decentralised internet of the turn of the century that I miss so much since it was replaced by a tyranny of ever more doctrinaire and capricious thought commissars. And I said that one day will be disseminating Stein Online via the last rusting Xerox machine in the woods. Well, the day of the last rusting photocopier in the woods is heading towards us very fast. Eight years ago, conservatives blew one billion bucks trying to drag Mitt Romney across the finish line so that he could become president and spend the next four years screwing us over. Imagine what that billion dollars could have done starting an alternative to PayPal or Facebook or even uh, trying to get some landmark lawsuit before the Supreme Court uh, as to whether these uh, internet monopolies and cartels are in fact public accommodations that should be open to all. The right is caught in a vice because it never plays for any of the turf that matters. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. While we're on the subject of muted voices, this number seems rather appropriate. One hundred years ago tomorrow, July 22nd, 1920, the San Francisco music publisher Sherman Clay and Company registered the copyright for this song, Whispering. Orchestra and the song that launched Whiteman's career as the biggest band leader of the era, the so-called King of Jazz. Whispering was a huge seller, the best-selling record of 1920 and one of the biggest of the decade. And it planted that tune in public consciousness for, well, the next century. 
That's how Gloria Estefan begins her record of Cherchez La Femme, which is basically whispering hipped up, uh, which is why Whispering's authors get a credit on Cherchez La Femme. Speaking of which, uh, who wrote Whispering? Well, it's two household names called John Schoenberger and Malvin Schoenberger. Don't all shout, oh, those guys at once. Uh, they were supposedly brothers from Philadelphia. John wrote the tune and Malvin the words. There's no evidence that Malvin Schoenberger ever walked the earth other than his name on the copyright of this song. But for a hundred years, he has had a whispery, discreet, sotto voce presence, more substantive than most of us, just through this beguiling lyric. Whispering while you cuddle near me Whispering so no one can hear me Each little whisper seems to cheer me I know it's true, there's no one dear but you are in the parlour. That's a, a lovely record. Uh, a generation after Paul Whiteman, 1940, the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra with vocal by the Pied Pipers and a young Frank Sinatra. So if Malvin Schoenberger never actually existed, who wrote that song? Well, as I said, it was published by Sherman Clay and Company of San Francisco. And on August 27th, 1920, the Music Trade Review reported that Sherman Clay was shipping 5,000 copies a day of the sheet music of Whispering, just a month after it was copyrighted. Uh, and uh, the Music Trade Review also credited the song to John Schoenberger and Herbert Marple. Mr. Marple was a salesman with the publishing company, so I think we can discount that. Mr. Schoenberger himself said in later years that Malvin Schoenberger was a pseudonym for Richard Colburn, which was itself a pseudonym for Frank DeLong, who might as well be a pseudonym. But it never hurt the song. So here we are another decade on, after Tommy Dorsey in the 40s. Liz Paul in the 50s.
It's the perfect simple pop tune with the perfect simple title and no one knows a thing about how it was born. Here's my theory. Uh, the publishers, Sherman Clay, never had another hit like it before or since, unless you count a very fine song, but a rather minor standard from the early 30s, Close Your Eyes by Bernie Spetkery. I love that song, but it's nobody's idea of a blockbuster A-list standard. Um, in fact, if you're in California, you may know Sherman Clay as a retailer of musical instruments. They sold pianos and guitars and violins in their shops up and down the state until about seven years ago, when they decided to get out of retail after a century and a half in order to focus on real estate management and consumer finance. Now there's a romantic scene. Whispering of consumer finance. But a century ago, uh, when you were in the musical instrument business, you needed musicians on hand uh, to demonstrate your instruments as well as to promote any songs you might have going to play on them. And John Schoenberger uh, was a violinist. And sometimes a guy has one theme in him that he can't quite develop, can't quite sock it home. So Vincent Rose... And if you've seen the video of our last live performance song of the week before the COVID killed live music uh, with Carol Wellsman and Russell Malone and the Stein Show Band, you'll know Vincent Rose wrote I Found My Thrill on Blueberry Hill and also wound up on the credits for Avalon that uh, Carol, Russell and the band are kicking around to great effect. And something similar happened here. As a professional songwriter, Vincent Rose was called in to help out, but he was under contract elsewhere and so did it on the sly, on the quiet. And we'll never know for sure, as I said, because that's just my theory, uh, because for a century this has just been a one-off blockbuster nobody knows the origins of. A decade after Les Paul, the swinging 60s, Nino Tempo and April Stevens. Cheer me Oh, I know it's true There's no one dear But you Who hasn't had a crack at whispering over the last century? Dizzy Gillespie Bebop fave uh, Groovin' High uh, Dizzy put that together in uh, 1945 That's based off whispering and here's Al Jarreau in 2004 bringing Dizzy and Mr. Schoenberger or whoever together. <laughs> So no one can hear me Each little whisper seems to cheer me You know it's true There's no one here but you and keep on whispering 
song is by Cole Porter or Irving Berlin or Rogers and Hart. Sometimes you just get a freakish one-off from fellas you've never heard of and from whom you never hear again, but their one brief shining moment shines on as gloriously as anything by Porter or Rogers or any of the big shots. Having said all that, there is one blue-chip American songwriter who has a connection with Whispering, one that in fact predates the registration of the copyright and the famous Paul Whiteman recording. His George Gershwin, back when he was just getting started and he was a Tin Pan Alley song plugger, hearing a lot of other writers' songs and sometimes making piano rolls of those songs. That's not a gramophone record, but something you uh, stick in a player piano and the piano plays itself, as it were. And here he is, duetting with himself and some fantastic variations on Whispering. He never met John Schoenberger or the non-existent Malvin Schoenberger, but the composer, uh, the, the soon-to-be composer of Rhapsody in Blue and Porgy and Bess and all the rest, figured this tune was up there with the best of them. George Gershwin whispering, whisper it, who dares? They'll not be letting us even whisper much longer. That'll do it for today. I'll be back this evening with the latest episode in our new Tale for Our Time, my contemporary inversion of the Prisoner of Zender, the Prisoner of Windsor. Hope you'll join me for that. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.
Rights Reserved.